you're listening to Sworn to Serve, an original podcast production of the Orleans Parish Sheriff's Office. I'm Casey Ferran McGee. I'm also here with Sheriff Susan Hudson. Good morning. Thanks for being here with us. And later on in this episode, we're going to be joined by Dr. Astrid Bergden, who has served as the warden of the jail for the past 18 months. But first, we wanted to take a look at the transition year, that that period when we first came into office, when you first came into office, and there was a lot happening. What happened when you first got here? Oh, wow. Uh, You know, the expression, drinking through a fire hose, it was like that. Uh, Just everyone coming at us at once, Um, all the hopes and expectations for change, you know, kind of being, you know, looked for. Like at the very beginning, before we even got into the office to see everything that was going on. And then that's bringing together a new team, uh, trying to assess what's going on and working out a plan to fix what's going on and to follow our community's orders. What were their expectations? Um, You know, we had worked, first of all, I had adopted my campaign platform was the community's platform. They had put that together. So when I came into office, we had also gone through a transition uh, committee made up of over 150 members of our community who were telling me how to operationalize that, that that campaign and their platform. So we came into the office with a with a set of rules that the community wanted to see implemented. So that was really good for us. Uh, but when you get in here, the first thing you have to do is make sure that at that time it was about 900 people in the jail are fed, secured, get medical, mental health, get to court. Uh, the courts were trying to open up at that time, and just it was uh, you know just getting in and getting your feet wet first. Right, because this was right in the midst of COVID as well. So that was probably a big challenge. It was a big challenge. So, you know, it's the tail end, but the courts were ready to open up now. That hadn't been going on. So now we had to figure out at the time it was around 45 to 50% staffing. Mm -hmm. And we had to figure out how to open up a new uh, function that we hadn't been doing in the past two to three years. Uh, And we had to figure out how to get that going again with that little uh, amount of staffing. What are some of those other challenges that really uh, hit you hard right there in the beginning? Well, uh, it was a campaign, a hard-fought campaign to defeat a 17-year incumbent. And not everyone in this organization wanted to see that change happen. So you've got about half of the organization is happy and about half that aren't happy. And we had about 650 or so, uh, I think, employees at the time I came into office. And when you think about that shift, when you say 17 years someone was here running this organization, there has to be... A large number of people who probably wanted him to stay, maybe even voted him to stay, but you were here. Um, How has it been trying to to bring the team together in a sense and uh, support a, a new culture within the jail. Yeah, culture takes a long time to change. I'm learning about that. Uh, Dr. Bergden can tell more about that as she's an expert in that. But um, you can't just put in a set of rules and think everybody's going to follow them. It doesn't work like that. And I'm learning more things as a leader that of a large organization. You know, a leader always has to model the way. Uh, and when you're in a small organization, it's easy for people to see that. When you're in a large organization, it's more difficult. Mm-hmm. And so you've got to be able to get them to understand your mission, your vision, your values, and, and continue to hire people into the organization who epitomize that. Um, but everybody, change is uh, not for everybody. Change can be very hard. In fact, there's one thing people really hate, it's change, right? 
they want very change, but they don't want to live through it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's tough. It's very tough. And then you have actors in the criminal justice system who like it to stay just the way it is. And I have vowed to make changes to it. So, you know, that's a threat to some folks. And when you talk about change, there had to likely be some big decisions right there in the beginning. It wasn't just coming in, changing the letterhead, putting new seals up, changing the logo. It was a real plan, execution that planned execution that had to take place right there at the beginning too. Yeah, well we had to look at leadership at the top of the department. So there had been deputy chiefs in office for decades, like 30, 40 years. And when I got into office, most of them quit. There were a few who didn't, but most of them quit. So now we have a big void at the top of the department. And so we bought in a very large, um, high-ranking team, assistant sheriffs. And I created that new um, title to give them the power in this organization to make the changes that I want to make. And I have a very ambitious agenda for change, and I needed a broad unit to do that. Which was good and bad in some ways, but so we got a lot done, but we could have gotten a lot more done um, in that time period if we had streamlined decision making in some way. So um, we needed people with power to make change, to assess, um, and to, to move the department forward and keep it running. And I've heard you say too, in the first year was really just figuring it out all out. And then now we're kind of operationalizing the things that we've decided needed to be done. That's right, when we got into office, we knew number one, we needed raises for our employees. We had to take care of our employees better. They needed raises, they needed better training. Many people had not even read the consent judgment and didn't know what was in it. So we're 10 years in to it, and people don't know how to um, comply with it. Well, you're never gonna get out of it until they understand that. So we knew that those were, uh, we found those issues, we knew we had to change them. Um, we knew that the buildings were deficient. We had, they had not been kept up and cared, taken care of. And that the actual jail itself has some features in it that make it more difficult to have a safe environment. There are ways that people can harm themselves and harm others, make weapons and other things. That was a big problem. We knew IT was sorely old. The Getting data was hard. You know, you want to run a, a, a smart organization, a, a, a one that has data, and you can use that data to make smart decisions. Very difficult to do with this current infrastructure. So we knew, knew we had to do better, and we knew we had to treat the root causes of crime. That's why Dr. Bergden was hired, because we knew that the majority of the population was on the mental health docket, um, and as she says, most people there are here for trauma, addiction, and mental health. So we knew that that's a big issue that we have to deal with. And if we really want to deal with the root causes of crime, give people an opportunity to do something better, we knew that we had to address uh, how we treat them while they're here. So let's bring Dr. Bergden into the conversation. One of the decisions you did make early on was to bring Dr. Bergden in as the Chief of Corrections or the Warden of the Jail. Um, Dr. Bergden, thank you for being here with us. Thank you for inviting me. Tell us a little bit more about why Dr. Bergden was chosen for this role. I had known Dr. Bergden for at least a decade. She, when I was the police monitor, she helped us put together a large committee of community members, people from city council, different parts of government, uh, nonprofit 
uh, nonprofit groups who were interested in police reform to put together the police um, community mediation program for the uh, independent police monitor's office. It was so successful. It was people being involved and engaged and putting together a platform that worked so well. The ratings for the, the program were no no lower than like 75% at any given time, but generally we're in the 90% of approval range. Most of the time I was in office because it was community built, community driven, um, and, and it just worked. And Dr. Bergden, tell us a little bit more about your experience in corrections and as a trained psychiatrist. Okay, so I um, started off at the age of 21 working with child sex offenders in a jail in Adelaide, South Australia. So I've worked in and out of the correctional system for 38 years. So um, I was part of a um, change process where we were given $300 million in the state of Victoria to revise the whole way we were running the statewide correctional system. So I had $20 million for offender rehabilitation. So uh, that was for both violent and sexual offenders. And then more recently I ran a drug treatment prison for six years in Sydney which was related to the drug court. So the drug court would compulsorily order people into my prison for rehabilitation and we would gradually um, have them uh, go back out into the community. So that piece of legislation was the only one in Australia where I could release a convicted, sentenced drug-related offender into the community before the end of their sentence. And if they went out nightclubbing and using ecstasy or ice, then we would bring them back into the jail for treatment and then let them out again. So it was a two steps forward, one step back. So what are the differences between some of the, the corrections facilities you worked in in Australia to what you're dealing with here? Um, I think there's two main differences. I think in Australia we're far uh, better resourced for correctional systems. There's a lot uh, greater acknowledgement for the role of programming and reducing reoffending. so that's fully resourced and we are moving more towards being a human service. So I think Australia's realised that you've got a whole bunch of reluctant customers locked up in a building and it is really like running a human service with a secure fence around it. So I find here in the US it seems to be a little bit more uh, sort of like a military process and we used to do that two decades ago in Australia. So you might get someone who's managed a hospital and they will move sideways to manage a prison because it's actually the management skills that they're employed for, not that they have come up necessarily up through the rank like a military process. So transitioning into your role here, was that a challenge or was it something that you saw as a, a possibility? Um, well. When I got contacted by the sheriff, I thought, how lucky am I that I, there's a leader who wants to reform a jail? So that was too good an opportunity to give up. So that's why I came across here, and originally for six months. I've ended up being here longer, and I'm sort of pulled back to Australia. Um, and so for me, that was the opportunity to do that. So when I arrived here, knowing it's a very different culture, although I've been out, in and out of New Orleans for a decade in the US since 1999 or whatever. Um, uh, so for the first three months, I just sat and watched, just to understand all the interrelationships, because I know there's formal systems in corrections and then there's informal systems. So I just sat and watched how everyone interacted with each other. So at first, probably people thought I was a bit quiet, but in my work life, I've set up seven statewide services and I've always started out like that. 
that I just look and listen just to get the feel for how people are interacting with each other. And, and Sheriff, you would, you would say the same. Listening as a leader is important. Oh, yeah, very important. And I knew, you know, we just got so lucky with Dr. Bergman because, you know, six months in, but, uh, you know, she's an international expert. And she would fly around the world, uh, you know, consulting and helping people. And we, we, we were really lucky to get her here, even for six months. 18 was, you know, that was all gravy, you know. So um, just very excited to have her do that. But with the idea of we are trying to, again, um, a human services uh, institution. I love that, and I'm going to say that more often because that's exactly what we're trying to do. People know somebody in this jail. Our employees have rel relatives in this jail. Everybody has somebody who gets in this jail. And so they're our neighbors. They're the people we know. They're the people we care about and love. And so we don't want to lock them up and throw away the key. We want to we want to help them. And so human services, I love that. love that. Because it's sort of like, you know, the command and control approach. You're trying to control a bunch of humans that don't want to comply. And so it becomes just a low-level war constantly. So um, I was thinking in our discussions yesterday in the executive around project management that it's about persuade and engage. So it's about what skills do people have to persuade another person to, um, you know, act in the interests of everyone because you've got a bunch of antisocial people in here and you're trying to get them to act like pro-social people and it's the style and how you engage them in that that's important. Mm -hmm. Which is, I mean, not a, in, it's not much difference between that and employees as well in terms of getting them to come on board with something. Um, get it, you have to persuade them. You have to show the way. You have to show you care. Um, and and that it, it, it's a process that's going to work out for them. So, you know, we're all just people. Uh, at the same at, at some level so yeah very similar and a traumatized group of employees as well I would say who've been through a lot uh, you know I think some of your time was spent almost as a psychologist to some of them um, because of all that they'd been through I knew that when I got into office there had been a culture of sexual harassment and quid pro quo um, punishment um, as opposed to training and teaching and uplifting and uh, that's the employees there and then not properly paid and no fighting for their uh, to get good salaries and good benefits and training so uh, just uh, investing we're investing in the people who reside in the jail but also those who work here and what struck me from a psychological perspective we had two major incidents shortly after I arrived and one of them the staff were leaving work and I said don't you have a you know critical stress debriefing before you leave the workplace and they said nobody's ever offered that to us so we put a lot of effort into uh, having debriefing for people under after critical incidents which was part of your mission to also support the wellness of the staff mm. yeah it's a yeah. huge part um, this place does not run without deputies it just doesn't and they've got to come in every day spend 12 hours a day with people who are just have a lot of time on their hands to think of things to do so um, they are critical to our mission and when I got in one of the first things we had happen was an officer involved shooting off-duty somebody working a detail and when I spoke to the deputy she was like you know I was involved in a, a traumatic incident before I never got any treatment or I never saw anybody or debriefed or anything about it so we reached out to the New Orleans Police Department's uh, psychologist 
and ask that person to be a resource for us too. Now if an employee goes through a traumatic incident at work, we make sure they go to see them. We make sure they get a chance to be seen, make sure they're fit for duty, um, but also set a plan for them to be better and, and for wellness for them. And that seems to be a system that has supported the the shift in culture, I would assume, wanting to give people access to those resources, how are they receiving them? Um, well, I think now they request it, so it wasn't seen as a stigmatizing thing, you know, because it could have been seen as a bit stigmatizing, you don't want to ask for debriefing because you might look like you're not coping at work, but I think it's been very well accepted. And, um, and the other thing we've uh, done is we've uh, trained the case managers and others in mediation for conflict. So the staff have picked up on that as well. If there's conflict between staff, they're asking for mediation to resolve those issues. So, um, you know, I think it's just a different way of working. So you're mediating between staff and residents and staff? Yep, so between staff and staff, um, residents and staff, and we're offering it between residents and residents. Now I know listeners are going to be like, mediation for, for residents in a jail? Why? So what happens is I meet with the residents, I was meeting with them every two weeks to hear their grievances, the representatives of the pods, because if I step into a pod, 60 people are yelling in my face with their problems. So I'd get two representatives from each pod and we'd get together every two weeks and I would hear their grievances. So sometimes they'd say to me, oh, the deputy called me blah, blah. So I think, well, if I go to the deputy and say, did you say blah, blah to this resident? They'll go, no, I didn't. And so we've we're in a stalemate. So instead we thought that if the resident wants to have a conversation with the staff member about the situation that we have a mediator between them and it's both voluntary for both, so both have to agree. So if the resident says I want mediation with that deputy, the deputy has to agree to it as well. And then that mediator just sits between the two of them and allows them to have a conversation. So facilitates the conversation. How does that help? It stops resentment because when you look at violence in prisons and jails, there's certain causative factors for it and one of them is if you're feeling like you're not being heard or you're being disrespected. What I've learned with New Orleans culture, there's a very strong issue around disrespect and people get highly offended. So that just starts a, um, a process of resistance amongst the residents. Mm -hmm. So it's trying to resolve those conflicts before they um, uh, escalate and everyone wants to be heard. The residents want to be heard and the staff want to be heard. And I use something that I use in Australia called the three V's. Mm -hmm. So I call it voice, validation and voluntariness. If you give someone voice and you validate that you've heard what they're saying, they might not agree with the outcome, but if they think the process was fair, they're more likely to comply. And that's how we set up the citizen police mediation program here in New Orleans using that approach. So it's an empirically based. Somebody sat in court and watched judges and checked who complied with the judge's instructions. So if the judge listened to the person's story and validated it, they were more likely to comply. Okay, so there's a lot that happens with this model of change and one of those things is the use of the word resident. Mm -hmm. I know that many in the community question, why are we calling people in jail residents? Talk a little bit more about the decision to use that language and why that was important in this model of change. Okay, so when I arrived, I was surprised that people were being called offenders because I said, this is a pre-trial jail and they're not yet convicted. So why are we calling them offenders? 
inmates might be more um, less that you have to be a convicted person. Then I know the transition committee that I was part of were calling uh, the, um, per the persons in custody. Then I thought, well, next thing we're going to be calling them PICs because everyone shortens stuff. Mm -hmm. So I'm speaking to Tarana, my executive assistant, and I'm saying we've got to come up with another word. She said, well, every month the censor people come in and do a censor to count the number of people in here, and they call them residents. So that's how it came about. So we said, okay, let, how about we call them residents? And then that way we're not saying to someone you're an offender before you've been convicted. But still, the language is so important and still the term inmate gets used. I've noticed in the um, consent decree report it's inmate. So yeah. it would be better if we could just all be consistent. And that may be because of the historical nature of what this facility was previously. It was a prison. It was. It was a place that housed people who were convicted all of All kinds crimes. of people, that's right. right. It was, a, I think they had 6,000 people in different facilities at one point, which is that's the size of a jail in Houston, which has three or four million people in it. So we were way outsized, but I can't even bring myself really to use that term inmate on somebody. I just, it's, it's, it's just, uh, I just, I'm not with it. But I like resident, but I've never required anybody to call them resident. I, we just modeled the way. Mm -hmm. We just modeled the way. We don't use it, the word inmate. We use the word resident in all of our you know, policies, procedures, memos, all of our communications. And then eventually, we hope to make sure that everybody's on board um, with, with treating people with respect. Uh, inmate seems, doesn't seem humanized to me. And then some people who will, who will say that you're not running a hotel. They're not a resident of this house or this, this institution. What did you say to the critics of that word? Um, well, they are resident with us at the moment and they've got no choice but to be resident. So you could call them reluctant residents, <laughs> <laughs> involuntary residents. Um, but uh, uh, I was just trying to find one word so it wasn't yeah. too wordy. You know, in, in the prison I ran in Sydney, we called them participants like drug court participants. Well, that's a bit different, and then, yeah. yeah. And they, they were sentenced and actively involved in treatment at that point. And let's make it a little bit, let's clarify and pin down on that point of this being pre-trial facility. So the people who are here are dealing with what? Uh, they're dealing with chaos, really. They've been caught on the street, charged, sent to us. They're in a state of flux, chaos. A lot of them get out within 72 hours, so they might be bonded out, so they're with us for a very short period of time. We have a throughput of 7,000 people a year coming mm. through here, and then other people get stuck. So we've got people who have been here five to eight years waiting to go to trial. So wow. as the sheriff said, I mean, I assume that every single person has a drug addiction, a trauma history, um, and... Um, some mental health issue unless on an individual basis they don't. So I just have the assumption as people come in that they're all three. And that's why our case management system is being developed so the case managers can assess for those needs as people arrive here. So we've covered a lot in this episode and sadly Dr. Bergden will be leaving us next month and we want to keep you around for another episode because there's a lot more that you've been able to institute and do uh, as part of this model of change and we want to talk about some of those things um, in our next episode but do you want to leave us with any final thoughts on the the, the transition year? 
Uh, well, let's just say it's been interesting because <laughs> I've been living in another country. I mean, I love New Orleans and I knew exactly what I was coming over here for. So I, I wasn't walking around with my eyes wide, you know, my mouth wide open and my eyes looking like shock. Uh, so it's been a very um, wild ride is what I would call it. And it can only get better. So and I know change takes five to ten years. So we have just tap the surface you know of what needs to be done yeah. but I've really appreciated having this opportunity because there would be no other opportunity like it. Yeah and Sheriff do you want to say anything about the transition year and your time here in the first year which is having Dr. Bergen on board to support? It's been tremendous for us because it really sets the tone. Uh, if I show that our warden is a clinical psychologist that tells you where we're trying to go. Um, the fact that she's been able to listen to our staff, listen to the residents, bring down grievances, also bring down the number of uses of force in a year, the, mo the amount of force that we as an organization use against the residents, that's important, that's really important. So. Um, it's uh, been a tremendous sacrifice for her, but just, uh, just very appreciative of it, very much so. All right. Well, that's going to be in the end of this episode, but we want you to come back. We want you to continue listening to this conversation because next week we'll talk more about Dr. Bergden's initiatives that she's put in place to support uh, change in this institution and how all of that has been received and where we're headed in the near future. So thank you so much for listening. Uh, we want you to like, subscribe, and make sure you share this podcast. And also send us messages, send us emails if you'd like to ask any specific questions of the sheriff or any of us here in the department. We are happy to be uh, a resource of information and we want to be able to communicate with you more effectively. So thanks again for listening. We'll, hear, we'll see you next time.